speak to you this morning. Uh, just a blessing. Glad uh, Jordan and Patrick could uh, trust me uh, to uh, preach this morning. And uh, also really glad that they got to go to Pepperdine and other sort of workshops. Uh, those are just uh, really great uh, events to send your preachers to and ministers and staff. Uh, they often come back really refreshed and so it's really uh, a win-win for everybody to have them go. Of course, there's some risk somebody may hire them, but uh, you know, that's just uh, the way it has to be. So uh, glad that Patrick still likes Minnesota and us, so that's, that's good. Uh, we've been attending here for some months, and, and Barbara and my wife and I and uh, just feel really blessed uh, at being here, just love the spirit and the congregation and the leadership and, and Patrick and Jordan and their families. Uh, I just think they're keepers, don't you? Yeah, I think so too. I just think they are. So yeah, yeah. So, so uh, we feel very loved here and very welcomed and, and just like the spirit and the direction the church is going here and, and so feel uh, blessed to be a part of it. This morning we're going to be reflecting on some lessons from 1 John. So uh, if you have Bibles, you may want to turn those or listen. Uh, I don't have extensive slides this morning, just kind of references. Uh, you can pick up those and, and sort of listen There are a lot of issues in the Christian life that, of course, affect the way that we think and that we also live. One of the most prominent concerns, although I think it may be often unvoiced, is whether we're going to be okay or not on the judgment day. Will we have believed enough? Will we have given enough? Will we have served enough? Will we have confessed enough? Will we have repented enough? Will we have shared our faith enough, loved enough? And the list, of course, just goes on and on and on. Of course, there are groups of believers that don't have some of this sort of angst that we may have because they may believe that all believers go to, uh, go to heaven, all believers in Christ are saved, uh, maybe even most people in the world, regardless of their way of life on earth. Generally, that is not our view. We believe that the biblical witness is that we will be judged on how we have lived. And that makes a difference in where we spend eternity. So our problem, I think, our question is, and I'm often asked about this, uh, you know, when I travel some and in workshops and camps and somebody may come up afterwards and, and we just sit down and talk about these sort of things. Our question is, how well do we have to perform? What is good enough? To put it in academic terms, does one need an A or B or C to get into heaven? Or will even a D minus get it? Or sometimes I'd hope, I just want to be in the herd, you know, and not notice as the gates are open. I just want to be with the sheep and, you know, not to critique too well to get through the pearly gates. And since God doesn't send out yearly report cards or pink slips, we are left to decide for ourselves how well we are doing. And we know from watching ourselves and others that the range of opinions on this is quite wide. Some people are very lenient towards themselves, and others tend to be very harsh in their judgment upon themselves. This is more than just an intellectual question. The question, if pondered, has the potential to either bring us joy or anguish. 
One friend of Barbara's and mine was struggling, this is years ago, with a terminal illness. She had grown up in a good Christian family, and she, as far as I could see, you know, I'm not all-knowing, but as far as I could see, had a very serious holy life. But the predominant scripture that flooded her heart was from 1 Peter 4, verses 17 and 18. It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And she just really focused on that part about it's hard, it's difficult for the righteous to be saved. And no matter how much I tried to assure her that her salvation was secure, I think she always thought I was just trying to maybe make her feel a bit better, you know, sort of uh, being soft about all that, and that what I was saying was really too good to be true. And she had heard so many sermons about the dangers of people who emphasize grace too much that those tapes in her head just played over and over in her mind. So, I have opportunities to talk about that, and so even if this is not an issue that's pressing on you, if you kind of take what I bring this morning from 1 John, it will really equip you to play a blessing to other people. So, that brings us to 1 John. The first, uh, the short version of the background is that John is writing to Christians whose faith has been shaken by others who have been teaching wrong things about Jesus and the Christian faith. Among them are that Jesus Christ did not really come and die in the flesh. Secondly, that obedience to Jesus is really not that important. And thirdly, that loving others is not central to the faith. And then woven in with all that is sort of a view that uh, there, you need sort of a mystical knowledge about God. And so that there are some people that, you know, they kind of see the Christian faith. You know, a lot of you are kind of black and white, but I really see things in Blu-ray. You know, I just, you know, technicolor, old term. But, uh, you know, I, so, so there's really this difference, and you need this mystical sort of knowledge. John writes these Christians a letter of assurance to let them know that this false teaching is dangerous, and it is not true, and there is another way than through special knowledge, mysticism, to know, to know for certain that you have eternal life. So John will write this several times, telling them, he listened to these phrases about, I write to you, from 1 John 2, 12 and 14, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Let's just think about how they would have heard this. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God lives in you. 
and you have overcome the evil one. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, so John has this letter of incredible uh, assurance that we can be certain of, of having eternal life. And then he writes in cycles and he, write, he lists basically three simple concrete ways to know you have eternal life. And then one other one that I think is a little more subjective we'll get to so that, so that we can know that when we die, all will be well with our soul. And even right now, we're experiencing eternal life against what seems to be all the differences in our experience. So we'll just click through them. We know that we have eternal life, John says, because we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He was truly God in the flesh and was born and he died as a real person. From chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is born of God. For us, it may be the easiest of the four. It's hard to even imagine that anyone professing to be a Christian would have any doubts about this. All of us have surely professed that we believe Jesus is the Son of God at our baptism, and so this requirement might be easily checked. We're good on this. Secondly, we can know that we have eternal life if we obey Jesus. There are apparently some who had left the church who either minimized or disputed whether obeying Jesus was very important for eternal life. John minces no words on this view. He writes chapter 2, 3 through 6. We know that we've come to know. I mean, listen to those words. We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but doesn't do what He commands is a liar. Truth is not in Him. But if any old one obeys His word, God's love is truly complete in Him. This is how we know that we're in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus walked. So the second qualification to know we have eternal life is that we are dead serious about being followers of Jesus and imitating His lifestyle. In other words, Jesus must be the focus of our love and decisions. And then the third qualification is to know that we have eternal life is that we love our brothers and sisters. From chapter 3, verse 11 through 19. This is a message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity for him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love not with words or tongues, but with actions and truth. There are apparently some people who claim to know God and have eternal life, but when it came to the rubber meeting the road of loving, their actions denied it. They really didn't care about other people's needs. To know that we have eternal life, we must have actions that go beyond mere talk by actually doing something to alleviate suffering, even feeling sympathy towards others unless it is accompanied by good deeds does not qualify one for eternal life. 
Now, sort of an aside here, but not really. <laughs> I think on a practical level, this is just about the most difficult one. Because people are not easy to love. Right? Anybody found that? Am I alone up here? <laughs> I guess I am alone, but... People get themselves into terrible messes and sometimes they're very resistant to changing even if it would be better for them. People can be ornery and stubborn and mean. Anyone come to mind? Some people are just hard to like. Some people are hard to love. Dying to self, in my experience, in order to help others is an acquired taste and it's almost always initially bitter. And yet John says... The way we can know if we have eternal life is if we're laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, another sort of aside about the obedience and loving others. How perfectly do you have to do all this? I mean, I, that's the question I ask. I'd just like to remind us in chapter 1, John makes clear that no one is perfect and we must rely on forgiveness, right? So obedience and love need not be perfect. Jesus is more interested, I think, in the direction of our life than perfection. So when I look back over the last years of my, my life, I can, I can think about uh, the last year, I can, I can think about times when I wasn't obedient. And I can think about times I wasn't very loving towards people. So I'm not doing this perfectly. But over the last five or ten, I, I can see I'm making some baby steps. Sometimes it's two forward, one back, and, you know, it's, kinda, it's not a straight line up. It's up and down and that sort of thing. But uh, I want to be more like that. And uh, there are occasions when I just sort of surprise myself and I'm doing better. I'm doing better on that. And so I believe that means that I have eternal life, even though I'm not doing it perfectly. Then the fourth one, the more subjective one, those are three concrete ones, I think. John says something really intriguing, I think. The Spirit confirms with our spirit that we're children of God. He writes, dear friends, if, if you're kind of thinking about your life and your heart's condemning you, you can have confidence before God because and receive anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And then all four of these are put together. So obey his commands. And then secondly, and his command is to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And then, and then, he, and then he pulls in this fourth one with the other three. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. In my mind, this qualification is the most subjective and has been the most difficult one to explain in practical terms. John seems to expect that his readers will know what he's talking about. But on this experiential level, during most of my Christian life, I've kind of felt like, I don't, I don't know what John means here. I don't, if you were to ask me to explain it, I, you know, I can't, I can't, I don't know what that means. How does the Spirit testify with my spirit? Is it sort of a warm feeling or does God speak to me? Here's what I would suggest for your study and consideration. John links, as I mentioned, the testimony of the Spirit 
with these other three qualities of belief, obedience, and love. So what I've noticed as I've grown in the Christian faith is that I've tried to focus on those, those belief and obedience and love, the more peace and joy I have. There have been times when I've been quite fearful about Judgment Day. Uh, remember uh, years, years ago, they, they still had airplanes then, uh, but uh, flew back and forth from Kansas State University uh, on holidays and stuff. And I remember that I lived in South Dakota, flew out of Rapid City to Denver, then from Denver to Manhattan, Kansas. And so uh, the, the uh, pilot comes on and says, uh, we're experiencing a little difficulty with the aircraft. You know, that's a little unsettling. And it's a pretty small one, two seats on each side. And so we're flying along. They're considering whether they got to go back to Denver. And a crew member comes down the aisle, and I was sitting on an aisle seat, and he comes right by me, and he lifts this panel out of the plane. And I'm thinking, this can't be good. And he's got a pair of pliers. You know, vice grips, you know. And I'm thinking, that this is, and, and he doesn't look very competent in my mind. And then I'm thinking there's going to be all kinds of stuff down in the fuselage, down in the belly of this plane, right? And there's like 10 wires. I guess they're coming from the front to the back, adjusting the rudders and everything. And I'm thinking, there are 10 wires down there. There's nothing in there. And I'm thinking, this can't be good be PR. I mean, that would just blow up now, wouldn't it, on the Internet, if you viewed all this. And so uh, I'm thinking, what if this thing goes down? And I'm not ready. Because I'm not sure what's going to happen if this crashes. But over the years as I've studied Romans and 1 John and these other things, my heart is slowly, those sort of fears have begun to dissipate. And that God is greater than our hearts. He's greater than my self-condemnation. He is greater than my fears because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm striving to follow Him. Last of all, I just want to remind us of the foundation upon which all these four qualifications are laid. That salvation is not based upon our performance, but upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. Amen? And that is why I wanted to leave that until the very last. Because if that's the only thing you leave with this morning, you must leave with that. So John writes in chapter 1, 5 following, this is a message that we've heard from him, and we declare it to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Our hope's foundation is the blood and the death of Jesus for our sins. But we can know that we're in contact with this eternal life, the very life of God, when we're trusting in Jesus. We're striving to obey Him, be like Him, imitate Him, striving to love each other in all those challenges and being witness open to the confirmation in our own spirits. One of my favorite stories uh, from the past is about a grandmother who was failing. She was in the hospital, and uh, they knew she wouldn't be long for this world. 
And so uh, the doctors and nurses told the family, uh, it won't be long. Yeah, you need to call in all the children and grandchildren and get everybody there because she'll be gone soon. And so they did, and, and uh, those of you who've experienced this, there's, there's kind of a tendency for it to, you know, with all the machines and all the gasmos and, and uh, it, you know, the person may be uh, almost uh, asleep and not very alert and uh, usually tends to be pretty quiet, right? I mean, pretty solemn, uh, some tears, people hugging each other. So it, it's a quiet, it's quiet. And uh, so the grandmother kind of wakes up a little bit. She becomes more alert, you know, kind of tends to be the case sometimes, right? And so, uh, so she, she motions for her grandchildren, and, uh, and she wants the bed propped up. So they prop the head of the bed up a bit. Uh, she asks the grandchildren to put some pillows behind her, prop her up. So uh, they do that. And so people are expecting the grandmother to, to give some pronouncement about uh, how much she loves them or, or something, you know, something greatly significant. And so she summons all her strength and she tells this outrageous, hilarious story. And you know how it is when, you know, things just switch on you too quickly and it's, things are so absurd and and so, oh, so that everybody it just, just, is just a roar and the room comes up of, of tears and laughter and, and people hardly able to hold it in and they're holding their, their, their stomachs and, 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 and uh, so the laughter begins to subside and they look up. She's gone. I'd like to go like that. I haven't got my story ready yet, so. <laughs> I've got a lot of them, though. Some pretty outrageous ones. But that's, that's the sort of the spirit I think John is trying to bring to these people who just aren't sure. Brothers and sisters, he's saying, there is a way you can be absolutely confident and you could leave this world laughing. It is based on the blood of Jesus and your allegiance to him. And you can truly be confident that you have eternal life and you will have eternal life in the future. And the church said, Amen. Uh, for just a way to respond to the Lord this morning, we're going to stand and, and uh, be led in song.